And that's where you want to be thinking about instead of saying, like, from the beginning, totally online, fully face-to-face, -face or hybrid. It's that was really helpful. Thank you. So may they follow up with you afterwards if sure. you have follow-on questions? Absolutely. And uh, Yash and Janir, you guys, one of the two of you decide, because you both have the ability to clone the ma two master classes. Okay. And Matt's add these guys. Get them to register. Um, so some of them already have Cami access to our course. Um, we should write to should I just add everybody in this room right now, or just the people who are okay. not in any way? Oh, no, but why don't you put them all in the, we'll, we'll take, we'll yeah, we'll the Master on. Math and Science class. We'll Make a care. version of it, because then you can see this is how we think we're doing in-service TPAC development. Give us input. Thank Thanks. you, Sarah. Thanks. Thank you. You know, one of the big drivers is always money. So Sarah and I are working on another project where we're using money partly from nonprofits like the American Association of Colleges of Teacher Education and partly from Microsoft. And we're trying to work with teacher ed faculty. So we're not trying to work with the pre-service teacher or the in-service teacher. We're trying to work with, say, the Jennifer Mang. And we have been doing a series of road shows around the country. We did one in we did one in uh, Austin, Texas, we did one at Chapel Hill, we're about to do one week after next in Washington, D.C. But by the time we fly in people from each content area, the whole thing costs $15,000 to reach 50 to 100 faculty. Okay, and it's clear that if we want to, you know, the goal is eventually over a four-year period, reach about 500 skills of that, and so it's, it's just not going to be financially or logistically feasible. We can't ask people who are doing this to go to all these places. It's just, you know, we'll wear them out. We can do three, but we can't do 300. And so if we had unlimited time and money, we could. So we, we sort of started out doing it in person just so that we could get a handle on it. And also to motivate the faculty that are developing the modules. Because if they know they're going to be standing in front of a, their peers, other fat professors, you know, it, you know, then they, they make that deadline and have something. But we'll have to migrate to something that, that won't be always in person. Now, I, I wasn't completely joking about the Northern Virginia. Sometimes if you don't think you can do it well enough, you just have to say, look, we'd love to do this for you. But we can't because it wouldn't be good enough. And you know, the thing in the spring, I think that is definitely a possible possibility. I mean, probably we can do it sometime. Will it be ready to do it in the spring? I honestly don't know. And I think we have a responsibility to say, we just don't, maybe somebody could do a good job. We don't think we can. So you'll just have to defer that or figure out some other way to do it. And so that's kind of a conversation that's still in process. Um, everything winds up ultimately. It, it's like what resources can you bring to bear for the goal you want? And in a way, that's classic engineering. Dwight is over there giving the undergrad engineers an assignment. If they had unlimited time or money, they could build us a nuclear reactor or whatever we want. But there are these design constraints that have to do with, you know, what are the resources that you can bring to bear? Um, 
I find that less interesting than I do philosophically. What's your angle of attack that you should take? So I find the idea. I think people concluded that after there, there are a lot of graduates of Curry that have been leaders in this field, like Judy Harris has been a big, you know, for for your more years than I know, Judy Harris has been trying to push a certain point of view to reform schools. And after doing it for 2025, she holds an endowed chair at William Mary, and she just decided, you know, this isn't working. I want teachers not to teach didactically, but I can get some to change their teaching style to match how I think they should teach using technology, but most teachers aren't going to do that. So then she decided that's when she sort of embraced TPAC. It's like, okay, let's back up and come at this from a different direction. Alan Kay, who's the guy that had a lot of input into what is now the mouse and a bunch of other things, came out of the Paddle Outdoor Research Center once said, point of view is worth 40 IQ points. So you'll always have design constraints. You never have unlimited time or money. You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, or as academics, you can give us unlimited time and money and we'll use it all up and then ask for more. <laughs> uh, that's our talent. So, so that's just kind of a given. But the question is, how can, you know, at some point if it's not working, step back and say, what might work better? And I think that's what you guys are kind of trying to, you know, we've got the right people in the room to do this. Uh, but where we're starting is not because 3450 is not working. No. But I was thinking about the profession in general, that Judy concluded that if we look at the money we spend on technology and schools, if you look at it in terms of inputs and outputs, we put, I think, about, I don't know, $27 billion a year into technology and schools. And then the question is, do we increase do we increase learning outcomes by that amount? And Judy concluded, and many other people concluded, no, we're not getting value for the money. So therefore, we could use it otherwise, I guess, like just use it to hire more teachers and with smaller class sizes increase. But, but looking at it just systemically for the whole K-12 system, are we getting the bang for our buck that we want? I wasn't meaning the three, four, five. Right. Just, just what this, I'm trying you know. to get down to for this group is what are our ultimate motivators? Why yeah. are we rethinking three, four, five, all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'd be interested in having Yasha's uh, perspective since he's the guy kind of on the front line. Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts, Josh, about? Well, I, I've, I've been writing down some thoughts while we've been talking about how to design this course online, but I don't think that was the initial question. Right? Like, one of my thoughts about 3450 right now. Yeah, how could, if we just did it the best way we knew how, what would it look like? And, and, I, and I, let me preface that by saying, um, Bob Tinker uh, and Marsha Lynn, who was Jenny Chu's advisor, starting in the mid-80s, thought that we could teach science better by using science probes and sensors. Uh, and incorporating that into science education, some of the same things we actually do in science. And yet, after, I don't know, 25 or 30 years of trying to do that, there is a, maybe a fifth of science teachers like Yash use that, but most don't. And so clearly we're not approaching it in a way that leverages the full potential. Uh, I should let you speak to that, Yash. Well, I think that, I'm sorry. 
Well, just in, in, in a moment, Josh can speak to some of those issues, but why are we even thinking about online? Oh. So I'm, I'm trying to oh. help establish why we are moving off-site, at least partially. Oh, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been treating that kind of like the weather, meaning that um, we have this imperative to just pragmatically to have, you know, we, we're going to uh, this new model that most of you know about, where uh, the Curry School will only spend the money that we generate. And because we have been in this area for a long time, most of the teachers in this area have degrees, and so therefore we're going to have to go farther afield. And so, so it's not a pedagogical reason. No, or, or not, not, not for me. Right. It has to do with economics, and at the same time, quality of instruction is going to be very important. So Dr. Bull said a moment ago, we might decide at a, at a certain point, well, we can't do this completely online for the quality that is important for a Hallmark Curry program. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just, I, I really don't have an intuition about it at this point. I wouldn't even want to do that. But, you know, the, we need to be able to serve a population that is not here. I think that that's bedrock for us. Yeah, and, I, and I'm also interested for reasons outside this class because I'm interested. Unless the people that prepare teachers get this, it's not going to happen. And so I'm interested, can we, here in the Curry School, probably taken, well, however long from 1982 until now, I feel like Curry School does a pretty good job, at least the best job we're able after trying all these years. But so there's an economic issue and then know. there's a pedagogical issue as far as training of teachers meeting this. Sure. Um, online experience so that as they step into their teaching positions they will be better able to design online experiences for their students. But at, at the same time I could argue, <coughs> I would argue against that for the elementary consortium. Like, I, I would never want to teach an elementary school class online. Ever, because there's so much. You know, these kindergarten kids are going to have to suck it well, up. There, there's so much that elementary Personally, teachers do <laughs> that has nothing to do with the content that cannot be replicated online. And well, we're I mean, not designing elementary. But stuff I mean, if, right now. I know. But if the idea is, can we replace instruction online? because of the idea of we want these teachers to have this experience so that they can do it later. I think that's all well and good for secondary, but if that's the pedagogical reason of why we're doing it, then I don't think that pertains to everything. Well, there are everything. economic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there is another one that people are, you know, the flipped classroom is like a thing lot. Uh, it just lets everybody see something different in it, which is why I think it's become popular. But, you know, but at the same time, the basic idea they're trying, you know, that was done by two high school chemistry teachers. And they realized they needed more time to help the kids solve chemistry problems in class. 
And since there were both two of them, they started doing some really creative things together. They got an immediate benefit that two of them could work for one class, and also the kids in the chemistry class then could uh, do some of the stuff outside to free it. So, so even though the whole thing has gotten totally out of control, in my opinion, it, it started from a really strong mode. I, I think the basic intent there was really good and very creative. Uh, and and so, so there is this other idea, if we're talking about adults, that is, I don't know, how old are people in the pre-service program? Like yeah, if we're talking about people in their 20s and 30s, can we make it a better program by putting some of it at least uh, that they can do at their own pace, make it more individualized, you know, that sort of thing. Well, I, and I agree with that aspect. That, that doesn't mean we want it to do, we want them to do it to four-year-olds. <laughs> Although, the image of it makes me smile. I mean, it's like the e that uh, e trade baby. Right, exactly. I mean, and a lot of parents are doing, I mean, I've seen a lot of parents giving their three, four, five year old kids iPads. But, 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 but an iPad cannot help you put on your mittens. <laughs> or stand in line. Or stand in line. You know, they did this wonderful trust. study, uh, and the reason I loved it is because they went around in elementary school and they counted the minutes kids did everything. And as you would expect, most of the time was spent in reading instruction. But it cracks me up that the second most time was spent standing in line. So I conclude <laughs> that elementary school is mostly learning how to stand in line <laughs> after reading. <laughs> what that says about our society, I don't know. But uh, you can't learn to stand in line. Well, transitions. Yeah. Are a big concept. Yeah. How come people are so bad at standing in line? Have you ever tried to but stand I, in line? But but you know, I, I, <laughs> sorry, I don't think anybody disagrees with you. So, uh, so no, let me introduce Dr. Chu. Some of you know Jenny Chu, uh, representing the science ed faculty. And I know you have questions for her, so let's transition to that. I'm not going to add parenthetically, it's very rare that you will find four faculty members who agree about anything. And the fact that <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, but the fact that you have all four instructional technology professors have the same general world view about this is pretty... But you know, there's we have some disagreements. <laughs> yeah, no, there's lots of agreements within that basic framework, but I think we're in agreement about the basic idea of starting with discipline and pedagogy. These questions aren't necessarily directly right at you, but I just thought of them. I'm just going to throw kind of two questions out. One has to do with 3040, and the other has to do with the consistent hammering on the idea that um, online classes are partially being driven by some cost equation. Here at the university, we certainly had a conversation all over the place. But I, I still don't quite understand where the basis comes for thinking that online classes are cheap. And, and, and where in a cost model, because I know across the street trying to implement these and the support staff that it takes and the, the resources that are being thrown at it to educate not really that many more people, where is the support and the evidence that this is cost effective? 
Yeah, well, you also have to have insurance for carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the sort of added costs. Yeah. Well, I mean, the University of Phoenix solved the problem very nicely by just giving uh, very low salaries. And standardizing the course quality. design. Yeah, right. I mean, so there's, there's the second issue is, is uh, to do this at a high quality level. You know, you've got a benchmark of quality. Right. Well, I mean, I think what happened in uh, Virginia, at least, is that people will come here for a PhD. Uh, and, but if we want to have a master's program, generally people will not, not move somewhere just for a master's program, like quit their job, come to Shotsville and stay here for a year or two, and then come away with a master's degree. So it might not even be more people than we were working with before but it might be people who are further geographically. Mm -hmm. And ideally, there will be different online programs with different velocities, so people whose velocities align with the way the Prairie School works will come here. People who have a different perspective may go to an equally good program at you know, Michigan online. So in a way, it gives people more philosophic choices. I mean, we have a distinct point of view in our PhD program here. And Hopefully, people seek us out. For him, that's a good fit. I guess I was going to shift it a little bit to the reason why I'm really interested in online education, uh, the reason why I do research with um, online methods of instruction is because it affords new possibilities that you can't get with face-to-face -face instruction, right? So there are um, ways to admit, you know, technology-enhanced collaboration, discussion, right? So if people in online settings are more likely to participate um, as opposed to, uh, or more, might be more likely to participate as opposed to face-to-face -face because they don't feel as threatened or they don't feel some sort of stereotype threat when they're talking or perhaps, you know, huge within science, of course, is scientific visualizations, being able to, yeah. you know, model the unseen. So there are these types of affordances of technology-enhanced environments and online environments that are very exciting to pursue. Um, in terms of the economics, I've heard both ways, right? So if you're thinking of these massively online so like quality, you put something out there, anybody can access it, right? But um, then if you're talking about a model where you have an instructor who and all of the you know, resources that go behind it, you know, I think, could be wrong, Teresa Sullivan came in first and said, you know, it's actually more expensive to run online courses. And, and, and she actually has quite a bit of, I got to talk with her briefly when she first came, and she ran the Texas online system. Mm -hmm. And so she knows about this firsthand, and that's why she was a little bit skeptical. I think, I think the reason we're interested in it is because, um, uh, for example, I, I hope that, that it turns out that, we'll, that, that this course, that Jenner will get that to the point that it will let us do some things. Somebody asks, are we going to use Collab? Well, we may or may not, but whether we do or don't, I hope we'll start integrating things like this course, you know, that we will build, we have kind of a vision that we'll build our own tools, like, like the one Jenner is piloting, that let us do things that we couldn't do otherwise. But you teach courses that, you know, you talk to people, German students and, you know, do some cross-cultural comparisons or a wide range of things that you can do with online courses. Um, not to say that, that they should you know, replace traditional courses face-to-face, -face, but, um, 
that, that's just my own opinion. I don't know what came before me, but... <laughs> you know, your answer was very similar to Sarah Nutt's. Yes. <laughs> Sarah and I used to tell before the time. <laughs> Make sure to get off message. So, whom haven't we heard from? I'd like to get a I haven't said anything. I guess I'll say it. Um, Dr. Chu, in regards to 3450 mm -hmm. and teaching free service teachers to have the TPAC mindset, mm -hmm. in your in your opinion, in viewing that, that product that you want them to come out of that class with, could that be ported to an online setting? without degrading learning outcomes. Is that a can it be done? Or should it be done? Yeah. <laughs> can two, it be done? Two yes, I do think it can be done. That's what I care most about. <laughs> <laughs> will, will it take a lot of refinement to get there? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I guess that's, that's sort of my off-the-cuff first response. Completely, so completely online with no, uh, so the, I guess the problem I see, another problem is that I teach the science methods course, right? So um, in terms of the practicality of the issue, I see it really working hand in hand with whatever methods course the students are involved with, right? So the technologies that Yash is teaching about in 345, I'm integrating into the methods course. So I see it, if they're doing some sort of online 345, then they're, they're learning about TPAC this in, a, in an online setting, then um, at least in my methods course, I feel like that can be reiterated and defined through the, the methods course. Um, in terms of being able to be standalone, yeah, but it's going to take some refinement to get there. Um, so, for example, um, we, um, I know Mabel has great expertise in this, uh, but in terms of science instruction, what we've done is at the beginning, we've had uh, summer camps where teachers come in and learn about inquiry and nature of science, and then they're out in their classrooms, um, and we follow them throughout the year, even though we're not there. And it's through CoLab, or was through CoLab, but they're sending in videos of how they've introduced these things in their own instruction, and then we you know, give them feedback and uh, you know feedback on their reflections, and then uh, they go out and implement something else. And so we're, it's all it's all facilitated online, but it's actually um, helping teachers to implement, uh, reflect, and refine their instruction um, in their context. So um, I think there are some really good models of how it can be done. You know, Mabel's probably worked at Castle um, that, that we could leverage. Uh, so maybe it's not that they're, uh, well, 345 is pre-service teachers, so they're not like, you know, actively teaching every day, but they do have placements, they do have they are in schools as well, if they're in the pre-service program. So there are ways to introduce those types of interactions with <coughs> um, uh, learning experiences. Does that make sense? Okay, um, I guess this is kind of funny. And then uh, a few things. But um, from my personal experience with online courses in general, they're usually focused in language arts or heavy reading and writing. Um, I'm kind of curious why we're choosing a science course, personally. Um, I think science is one of the harder ones to make it into an online because of the whole lab experience, and that's why it's normally not offered as an online course in terms of undergraduate studies. And the second part of that, by choosing science, there's a I feel like there's going to be more chances of problems happening 
and because of that, future simulation will be less likely to be, like, people won't want to accept it as much. <coughs> it's not just support, like, just all around support. Like, your teachers want to do it if they're going to have trouble later on. So I'm just wondering why we're choosing science over something where you see it more commonly used, commonly used in language arts, just for assimilation purposes. Wait, I, I couldn't quite understand like, that last part. Maybe, maybe so why, why would we use it in science when there's such a strong hands-on component yeah. about being in a lab? And, you know, science is about the exploration of the world around you, so if you're not there to support that, perhaps, yeah. and how would that be done? So, I'm kind of coming from, from, a, from a different perspective because I've been working with a web-based inquiry, inquiry science environment. So it's a whole, basically, online module uh, science inquiry curriculum units. Um, and in, that, in, in those cases, um, a lot of science can be um, conducted virtually, right? Um, especially for classrooms, because a lot of the labs take a lot of setup. They're really expensive. Um, they, uh, uh, they, you know, teachers don't have the time. So setting something up virtually can be really powerful for science students um, that they can experiment uh, with things that are too big or too small. Or they can actually, or dangerous, right? So they can, yeah, blow something up virtually instead of actually blowing something up physically, <laughs> right? Which I've had happen in my classroom. So, <laughs> um, so there are a lot of uh, great, uh, uh, I, I know that, there are a lot of reading reading programs in science, but I, I think that there's um, a real opportunity within within math and science, um, as well as all of the rich assessment. So you can capture some really great formative assessment with your students um, in online settings and have that you know col collected and binned for uh, instructor to be able to provide targeted feedback. And that's another great. Um, uh, affordance of the technology is the assessment and being able to, to get uh, to get that kind of information to the teachers when it's really hard to do that um, person to person or in face to face. Grace, you have a question? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, uh, uh, my question is uh, uh, I noticed that uh, GPAC is always used in K 12, or maybe between K 12. Uh, my question is whether you have application of GPAC in like higher education or like further education. It's almost by definition because uh, the reason that it hasn't come up at the university is if you go to the chemistry department, you'll find that they are teaching about method specific chemistry. In fact, every discipline here has a culture. Some of it's related to the discipline, some of it's not clear whether people get attracted to do a discipline because of a certain mindset or they adopt that mindset because once they're in the culture they change. You'll, you'll find that each department here has a mindset about the tools. And, and, I, and I'll, I would actually add one more thing um, uh, that happens to be a drum that I I feel strongly about this. Uh, the fuss about, you know, the rector came because they said we had not, that Stanford and MIT were getting ahead of us. And, and in point of fact, I was here in 1992, and uh, Bill Wolf, uh, who was the first person to ever get a PhD in computer science, said to the University Computing Committee, 
we really need to look at technologies that are specific to discipline. Right now we're spending all the money that we get for technology and, and engineering. And we need to rethink that. And he proposed uh, to the provost that, that we do something in the humanities. Uh, and uh, the provost uh, didn't like the idea. So Bill came back and said, let's take our entire allocation that we get at the time, the Prairie School would get about 125000 a year, and so would every other. So let's say we're going to give it all back and create a million dollars that we're going to put on the table from every, every department in the entire university, the law school, everybody, and we'll embarrass them and dare them to match it. And I'm not sure quite, sometimes I've worn that lost money because we thought it would go away for three years, not forever. But we voted, okay? And out of that was formed the Institute for Advanced, Advanced uh, Technology and the Humanities in 1992. Ed Ayers and Jerry McGann were the first two professors. Ed Ayers, a distinguished professor of history, Jerry McGann, a distinguished professor of English education. IAF was formed uh, with the idea that the technologies would be specific to this one. And in fact, the term digital history was first used here in 1993 at the University of Virginia to describe how technology would be used to teach history more effectively at the university level. So not only does TPAC apply at the university level, although it seems so obvious, no one ever thinks we need a special word for it, but it originated, at least in the humanities here, the term digital humanities was a conversation that emerged out of a conversation between um, uh, um, Bill Wolf and, uh, and Ed Ayers and uh, the guy that was the head of uh, the computing center at the time, Alan Batson. Yeah. Yeah. And the three of them collectively, it, they're not sure who first used that term, but what is for sure is the conversation among the three of them was the first time anywhere in the United States that the term digital humanities was ever used. And so to have a rector who is completely unaware of the history of leadership of the university uh, in this area is astounding. Uh, we were doing this more than a quarter per century before it started to become popular in other places. So I think the answer is probably yes, there is such a thing as TPAC in, in, in higher ed. It's just, it seems so obvious that the tools that you would use in, in history are different than the tools you would use in chemistry that it never, it never comes up. Um, yeah, I'm just not familiar with the literature. I'm sure Sarah might have a better perspective in terms of leadership or higher ed. I'm just thinking about, so, you know, in some part, we are kind of doing it because a lot of our instructors are learning about TPAC and then implementing that with our students, right? So in some sense, they're they're learning about TPAC. Um, but yeah, like like Glenn was saying, a lot of instructors over in chemistry, um, you know, you ask them simple things about you know pedagogical content knowledge, and it, they kind of know it, but they kind of don't. I mean, they're not they're they're teaching all these courses, but they're not um, trained in any sort of education educational method. Just like you can ask many, even many scientists, like are laws and theories the same thing, or do, do theories become laws? And sometimes they'll offhand say that, right? So, I mean, the nature of science and nature of the instruction, um, TPAC, of, of course, like it. Um, I, I don't know of specific so, actual initiatives. 
So, so how does the, the idea of TPAC evolve? It, it evolves from things like ITRTs. Okay. So if you have an ITRT, which is an instructional technology resource teacher. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So, so, so Virginia uh, legislature back in the, the 90s passed a law that said for every so many teachers, you'll have an instructional rehab and technology resource teacher, ITRT. And so, well, the first wave of those came from people who were out of the classroom that had been English teachers and science teachers, and then they came back to instructional technology programs, got degrees so that they were grounded in at least one discipline, plus instructional technology. They'd learn about instructional design and so on. But even that first wave would know it at most one discipline. So now you have a person who's covering several... In some cases, they're just in one school, but often they cover two or three schools. And so if people in one discipline ask for help, and if, it's, if their area was social studies and the social studies teacher, they're good to go, right? Um, but otherwise, uh, and, and then now we have a new, we're in the third or fourth wave, and some of them never set foot in a classroom, just became an IRTRT because they, uh, they were in business and they, they know about networks or something, installing Ethernet cable. Uh, and so then the other reason is the, the economic, the continuing, uh, I had proposed about 15 years ago to the continuing ed group that we ought to have in the same way that in Curry we have different courses than 3450. Uh, we don't all put them in one room, but Josh works with the, the STEM group and, you know, Jake uh, Cohen works with the uh, humanities. I said, maybe we should do that with continuing ed, and they said, no, we wouldn't make as much money if we advertise a course that any teacher can be in. We'll show them how to use PowerPoint, and if they're a math teacher, we'll let them figure out how it applies to calculus. So some of the drivers are economic, again. We come back to economics. That's why they didn't feel they could do it. They make more money if we say we're having a technology class. No matter what you're teaching, you come in this class. Now, Joe Garofalo had an idea. He said we should rent uh, the stadium, and we had that jumbotron uh, thing installed, and we just do like I don't know how many will the stadium hall. Just do them all. 60, at what? So we'll just do all sixty thousand. I mean, he wasn't being serious, obviously. Uh, and so we've had some fierce. <laughs> Maybe that'd be really exciting for some people. I don't know. <laughs> we've had some fierce arguments. I know that Joe, when uh, his daughter Ruby was just a little baby. We had a professor from Virginia Tech, and we were talking about forming a coalition, which we eventually formed a statewide coalition. And there was a professor from Virginia Tech, and Joe said, well, would you use a graphing calculator to teach social studies? And the professor said, I could. <laughs> and, and, and Joe later said he was glad he had Ruby because the, the, the conversation got quite animated and voices were raised, but then he could see he was trying to calm the baby and so that sort of quieted things down. People have strong opinions about this, but you don't get this in chemistry education. Nobody says, let's take all the history people and all the uh, people that are getting doctorates in chemistry and put them in one class and teach them all this thing. That doesn't happen at the university level. It only happens at the K-12 level. And that's why the whole concept of TPAC even comes up. And I think if you look at different course designs, you'll see TPAC perhaps
that's be implicit at the higher ed level. I mean, think about learning to do ID. Part of it certainly is exposure to the techniques and methods, but we're using cases. We purposefully selected cases and an online discussion environment to make it possible to engage in um, more extensive discussions that might otherwise be possible and to expose you to a range of practice arenas than may otherwise be possible. And so that's just one slice, and you can look at the other course activities, but they were purposefully chosen in those ways, although I don't really think about my course design being TPAC based, it is. And to Grounded in the discipline. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Grounded in the discipline and the pedagogies that we think are most valuable for developing students' own knowledge. And then the technology brought in to support that. And that happens more or less thoughtfully, more or less broadly across Um, A question for both of you. In the science class, how would, how would you want to see TPAC instruction delivered? Would it be an introduction to TPAC and like time spent on TPAC at the beginning? Or would it be something where it's just mentioned daily to say this is the technology? I mean, I, I, I kind of know where One of the it's going in my class. One of the things was the possibility of a TPAC module that they might design that would work in the secondary math science course, but that could also be pulled out and, and slotted in the social studies? Or does this need to be a science related thing? Well, we just covered deductive models of instruction and science class today, so that's starting with generalized principles and then deriving specific examples for the each. So you can imagine in science, you start with like F equals MA, and then you're, you're practicing specific examples. So this could be where if you take that type of approach, you have a generalized notion of TPAC, and then you create specific examples that the students go through, right? And the, so the inquiry phase would be starting with the specific examples and then having a generalization, the generalization of TPAC emerge from the specific examples, so an inductive approach to the instruction, right? So I think uh, I'm a middle child. I always go for the middle. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, sort of the approach, just in terms of you know what we teach for instruction, you know, starting out with the goals and then implementing it in specific cases, but making sure that you always make those connections back up to to TPAC, right? Um, so that's. And I think Josh is doing a fantastic job. Sorry, I just wanted to put a plug in there for how he's delivering some of this. So yeah, that's the third vote to say. Yeah. <laughs> there seems to be a consensus on advisor. So I have, it just hit me why I started thinking about, uh, uh, I thought it, I, I started thinking about the possibility of online for the 3450. And it, it was in the context. I know a, I have a friend who's a science professor and science education professor, and for some reason he aggravated the dean at his university. It wasn't here; it was at another institution, another state. And as a punishment, the dean made him teach the element, the the, the, the math methods course. And of course, he doesn't know. It's questionable to me whether was he punishing the students or the professor. 
But the fact of the matter is, he didn't know a thing about how. I mean, people who don't aren't in STEM just assume that math and science are the same, but they're not. I mean, not at all. And and so finally, he left and, and, and went into another university where he got a raise. Uh, you know, as a result of that. But in we would ideally, if we could afford it, hire Yash to teach the science class, and then we would hire one of Joe's students to teach the math methods, and we would hire, we also have the, the people from uh, PE mixed in, you know, and, and, and so it used to be Luke Kelly taught them, uh, the PE people separately, but then they decided having a class with uh, half a dozen people was not, it's too expensive, so they just, they put teaching the class in there that's not to find a place for them, so we finally put them in the, the STEM class for, well, that seemed to fit better there than the humanities. And so, if we were doing at least some portions of it online, then Yash could have, say, this week we've learned these general principles, but if you're in science, if you're going to teach high school science, then you can do this. On the other hand, if you're going to teach high school math, you'll do this module. Uh, so that offers a little bit more. The other alternative, we don't have the money to hire. They already think we hire too many IT uh, people like Yash. If we had the money, we'd hire more. But we, we have to have this. It's the same problem as continuing ed. We can't have classes with six people in them. So. Well, this is a critical question at this point, because when you and I had spoken earlier, Glenn, what my takeaway from the conversation was, was that we would have a, a TPAC-related module and then a, or multiple science modules that employed TPAC. Yeah. But if that's not the case, we need to know now. I mean, it's a Jenny's, Jenny's, Jenny's the one, because she's, she's, she's our bona fide science Following the TPAC principle, we should ask the science educators since we have one room. And so, but you've been supervising the three, four, five, yeah. five sections more broadly yeah. across time, and so I think I mean, this, also you were looking out across the other. Yeah, sections. I mean, this this seems like a good plan to me, mm -hmm. but I, again, it has to be something that that we. But all, I, I, we could go either way. Yeah. You know, it could be always TPAC in the service of the content discipline, yeah. which we would do for the... Yeah, so, so, Yashu, did you have a... Oh. Or was that your... Right no, I, I kind of have an idea following along with what you were saying about, yeah. you know, having separate disciplines and being able to do that on an online course. So it seems to me that if you had a TPAC-only module, yeah. I guess that would kind of consist of, okay, um, I feel like it's kind of like a two-step process where you yeah. initially think about TPAC and then you have to have another process to kind of implement TPAC. Mm -hmm. So for me initially, yeah. if you think of like a prominent pedagogical problem that's occurring in science classrooms or math <coughs> classrooms, and then you say, okay, well, okay, so I had to, I spoke too soon, a pedagogical problem, right? And then you apply it to certain content areas. Okay, where does this problem show up the most? Yeah. And then you address that problem with a specific technology in that content area. Okay, so if students in physics are having trouble with this, then I use this technology. If students in chemistry are having problems with the same concept, then I use this technology, and that yeah. to me is TPAC, right? And so that's, yeah. Yeah. that's part of the process. And then the second part of the process to me is, well, now what? 
You know, so what, what are my in-service students responsible for doing? What should they be able to do? Okay, understanding TPAC is one thing. Being able to correlate technology, pedagogy, and content knowledge is one thing, but so what? So for me, if, if, I, if you have a specific TPAC module, you could do it that way where you explore TPAC initially and then use that information you know, in different... Sure. Different students apply that understanding of TPAC to a specific case where they're right. dealing with a specific pedagogical principle where they have to apply this to content, this is how they teach it, and this is technology that's going to have a special affordance for this, this specific problem. I'm just bumping up, I have to put it in. So I think talking about sort of what I came in with, my perspective is how come we haven't, how come we haven't changed I know that educational systems are very conservative and they're very fixed on the status quo, but thinking about you know, Star Trek, um, you know, looking at how the Vulcans train their students, we've got an opportunity to have personalized, uh, <laughs> personalized systems. Or, from the, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> from the, so a total science nerd for me. But you know, how come we haven't transitioned? How come there's not a better solution? We've got all the technology to make this possible, to have better learning experience. I, I'm just going to say better learning, better personalized experiences, to flip the classroom, to make some sort of hybrid opportunity. Looking across in international settings, you know, there are places where in the Scandinavian countries, they go out and they, you know, spend a couple of weeks doing inquiry in the world around them, supported by various web materials of parents, and they come back in classes and they have these rich experiences. So how come we haven't, I'm sort of on the other side, why, why are we so slow to change? Um, anyway, that's it. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really struggling here. I, I understand everything that you guys are saying, I promise, because, you know, I'm doing it too. But I don't understand what our role on the TPAC team is going to be to do, because the things that Yash just described, I agree with completely. But I can't distinguish the difference between that and what Yash's team and what Yash's goal is going to be to do. Because, like, in, in the elementary one, the first week, this is what TPAC is. And then each week subsequently I take a pedagogical problem and I show how to use technology to work with that content in the pedagogy and so I don't I don't understand and I guess this question is more directed to to you Mabel what it is that we're supposed to do on the TPAC team and maybe well, my team knows and they can tell me to, to, <laughs> to query the collective faculty mm -hmm. to determine but what, they try. what the best solution Initially, that was what came out of conversations in a faculty meeting, and Sarah Dexter was there about an approach. And there are two possible ways to go about it. One is an expanded what is TPAC and let's apply TPAC in different ways, followed by now let's take a TPAC frame and, and explore these various technologies. That's one. And, or another would be just simply to, to dive into pedagogical problems in science and employ TPAC. Reiterating the TPAC principles, which is more what you're doing in elementary. And, and, but it's without the pre-service teachers knowing the pedagogy. And without the 345 teacher being responsible for teaching them the pedagogy. And I'm sorry? I, I didn't understand that. Like, these kids haven't taken the methods classes yet. And so, aside from the 345 instructor teaching them what they would then be further learning 
in the methods class. I'm just not. I'm just not clear as to what. I'm not with you on the point, but maybe if you understand it, you can. Yeah, they've got the content, but they haven't really learned the pedagogy. They haven't learned the PCK yet. So we're trying to do the TPCK before they actually get to the PCK. Yeah, and I think part of the answer about that conundrum is is that one thing you have to keep in mind: you're trying to set the step. We're trying to set the stage. Uh, for Robert Berry's class or for whoever, yeah. Ro or Robert Ty's class, we don't have to do it all in one go, and we probably can't oh. do it. And, and, and it used to be that we actually taught this in the fifth year, and people said, we really wish this week we had this at the beginning of the teacher ed program, so then we could use it in all our classes. And so we actually did it one time when we taught it then, they had done all the method stuff. And they took it in their fifth semester after they'd even done their student teaching. But then it got moved back to the beginning so that they could, and, and so it's sort of an imperfect, Yeah. it's an imperfect, either way it's imperfect. And, and but I they're understand. not walking in with a blank slate. They've been students, right? Yeah. And you can't expose them to a range of pedagogies that are uniquely well suited to science learning as part of that overview TPAC frame. Well, I'm not trying to question that. Like I, I've bought in. Like I am on. Board with, I, yeah, I've bought in with what I, what's happening. Okay, I, what am I, missing? I don't understand what, and I, seriously, if somebody on my team does, just tell me to shut up. Um, Who else is on your team? If someone on my team understands, tell me, tell me to be quiet. I don't understand what it is that my team is supposed to do for this project. And be I don't know how to use <laughs> because because I, I understand completely what theirs is supposed to do, and I don't want to switch or anything. It's just like I'm I can't divide them in my head. I can't divide TPAC from science. I can't do it. I have I have Sorry. Maybe you shouldn't decouple it. Then why are we separate? No, but the thing is, it's a sorry. I'm cutting you off. Go ahead. No, please. No, no, go I like what I was saying was it was a two-step thing, right? So. Like, for example, developing TPAC, right, is, is one concept. And I kind of said, okay, here's what you have to do to develop that TPAC. I think the second thing is what process should secondary educators go through in order to develop TPAC, right? So they're, they're kind of two separate things to me. Like, when you teach anything, there has to be a process involved, right? And so, for example, what, like, how are we going to build it? Are we going to show it to them first? Are they going to observe it? Are they going to try it first and see what they can learn and then like what like for example I'm going to use Canly because it's very easy um, so for Canly teachers are you know they're shown a technology so they try the technology out they play with it then they discuss the affordances of the technology and what they liked about it what they didn't and then they plan with the technology and so it's a it's a process so I, I think what the secondary team should focus on is what kind of process do pre-service teachers need to go through in order to adequately learn how to implement TPAC in the classroom. Whereas the TPAC team should focus on how do we teach TPAC. And, and I, well, maybe my problem is, and I'm going to shoot myself in the foot when I say this, like that's not as big as what you guys have to do. Like, I, if I'm trying to think of a module, like I can't think of, a, a module to me is more than a week, or more than a day of this. And I know that... I think you might be oversimplifying it because of 
all of the knowledge and experience you have that you're not giving yourself credit for. Like, you have to go back to, these students are, they've, they've had a year of college education, if that. They've had three. Aren't right. we talking about two, two, two or three? They've had two. The way the, the, mod, the model works here is different. But they don't, okay, but they've had two or three years of college education that's not focused on it, on secondary science education, right? Yeah. That's true. Right. This, is, this is really yeah. going to be their first year of being concentrated in this field. Yeah, so maybe, if, I don't know exactly how the teams are structured, but the way I see it is that you have this general principle of TPAC, right? So one team is perhaps divided into developing a module that is uh, domain general, right, about TPAC, which then can be uh, supplemented by domain-specific, um, either in science or in math, later in elementary methods, something like that, right? Yeah. So maybe that's the scope. Um, so it's coming up with, and I don't know if you're having a hard time distinguishing between the the specific examples, and then the, the TPAC in general, or? You have to suspend knowing how you're going to design the solution. It's not time for that yet. I see. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, and I think you had, there's, there's a gray period. There's a certain amount of ambiguity, and you just, you've, I think the other thing that's important for you guys to know is you're doing really important work, because generally where we're at as a profession, as near as I can tell, is there's a lot of acceptance of the concept of TPAC abstractly. It's, it's measured by, there's doctoral dissertations, there's been like two dozen doctoral dissertations done on it. Uh, most conferences, whether it's in science education or uh, site or ISTE, you know, it generates hundreds of submissions. But then when you drill down and look at these submissions, you find that although people have the abstract idea, they don't really have a handle on what it means in practice. They really don't. And so the work you're doing is really important. Uh, and I'm so delighted that I think you've got the right team here to tackle it. It's a problem that hasn't been solved somewhere else. And if you do a good job with this, you'll be moving the profession forward significantly. And so, but it, there, there is going to be some ambiguity. There's a period of ambiguity where there, you, you don't know all the variables. So you just have to start, you know, and... And you might decide down the road, TPAC team, that what you need to expose kids to is a, a survey of pedagogical methods. Yeah. Because they don't have it. Yep. But you don't need to do that yet. We'll be December, January, into November that period we'll be doing an instructional analysis. But we need need to focus on what is the optimal statement of need and what we think is an instructional goal or goals that will meet that need. And then we will unpack those with, with very careful methods. You know, Punya Mishra and Matt Kohler and also Judy Harris have all taken a crack at sort of doing this. And just pragmatically, while they may pass the test of rigor academically, when people read those, they, they kind of they're kind of have this hazy notion. They don't by themselves. It's not enough by itself, which means still more is needed. I'm sorry. I I, I I'm just trying to. I'm not trying to. No, you're I'm not trying to argue at all. I mean, this is an important 
part of being an instructional designer, and I've, I've mentioned it to you, but now perhaps you're experiencing it, and there's nothing like actual experience. So there are going to be points in time when you're going to think, I have no idea how I'm going to solve this problem. And that's okay. I've been there. Or, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so we're right now trying to articulate the problem. We don't need to worry about what's going to come down the road. We're going to have good methodology that's going to help us address that in a systematic fashion. So let's just look at the territory right in front of us, and that's articulating the need. Okay. And, um, and there'll be plenty of time for the uh, solution to unfold. And so you can trust us that you will be successful. Are you laughing? No, I wasn't laughing at that at all. I Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying in this There's no crying in its special design. So we are... Uh, over time, I'm sure Dr. Bull and Dr. Chu would be available to you for follow-up questions should you have them. So let's thank them for coming. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Yeah. I don't like to come with this. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And so we'll, we will see you on Friday during our lab meeting time. And we'll get started on this, although I know you guys met earlier and uh, have so been here. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, at least I got all of so my argument on. <laughs>